amen. Praise the Lord. Let's open to Revelation chapter 3 tonight. <coughs> Revelation 3, we're going to be in verses 14 through 22 tonight. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Looking at the church of the Laodiceans tonight, uh, verse 14 begins. He says that unto the angel of the church of Laodiceans, write, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not thou, uh, knowest that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and, the, and the, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that they, thou mayest see." As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I am also overcame and am set down with the Father in the throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Uh, when we approach Revelation 2 and 3, we observe the messages of the Lord to the seven churches at Asia Minor here. I believe there are three keys uh, to interpretation or understanding of these passages. First of all, uh, these were seven literal churches of the first century. And there's a map here that shows the location of those in modern-day Turkey, uh, what was considered Asia Minor then. And we've talked about uh, all of these, uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergam, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And uh, these are seven literal churches on the days that John is writing these. Uh, there are also, I believe, literal conditions of the seven churches that are reflected throughout history. I think in every church, in every age of history, uh, the church age, you can see uh, representation of these churches in there, or individuals even sometimes that have uh, this, these problems that they're facing. And then these seven churches also serve as a type, I believe, um, <coughs> and there's a good argument for it at least, as the types of seven stages of church history since the first century. For example, looking back at uh, from, the first, uh, from the first one that we saw, uh, the church at Ephesus, this was a literal church in Ephesus. It was a type or symbol of the post-apostolic church uh, after Jesus rose and then that time. But it can also be in various churches throughout church history. We can see the same uh, type of people who have left their first love. Uh, and then the church at Smyrna, a literal church in the city of Smyrna, um, a type or symbol of the persecuted church during the time of the Caesars. Uh, but it can also be seen in various churches in every age. And uh, there are many persecuted churches today. Um, and what he says about them is, is true of them today. 
the church at Pergamos, a literal church in the city of Pergamos, a type or symbol of the churches uh, who allowed pagan influences or religious pagan religions to uh, come in. He talks about the doctrine of Balaam. And there are still those who try to mix the world's religion with Christianity, the world's theology or world's philosophy with the church. The church of Thyatira was a literal church in Thyatira, a type of the papal age church uh, when the uh, popes were beginning to rule in the church. And there are still churches who allow idolatry and pagan feasts today. Um, The church at Sardis, again, a literal church at Sardis, Um, I believe a type of the Dark Ages church. And there are still some churches who find themselves in a dead religion. (coughs) They've tolerated sin and decay, and their church is dead. They're called to wake up and be watchful. And then last week we looked at the Church of Philadelphia. Again, a literal church in the city of Philadelphia. Not Pennsylvania, uh, but in Asia Minor. And it was a type of the Reformation and and the revival times in the church history. And there are still some churches who want to spark the fire of revival and reformation in their church. And go back to the word of God. And the church at Laodicea, we look at today. This is the present day church, I believe. Laodicea was a wealthy inland city of about 40 miles from Ephesus. It was along the trade routes that connected the two cities. It was the center for banking and textile production, uh, famous for their production of glossy-looking linen. Uh, It was also a banking center, as I mentioned, and not surprisingly a very wealthy area. They boasted of a famous school of medicine. In fact, they were famous for creating and exporting a special eye salve that was a medicine. And they were known as a lukewarm church. And this literal church, because of the difficulties during the persecution from the Roman, Roman Caesars during this time, uh, they knew they couldn't worship Caesar, or they would be pers- uh, it, but if they didn't, they would be persecuted, and that would affect their, their ability to buy and sell. And so they seem to have compromised to adapt um, in history. Uh, in verse 14, we learn a little bit of the philosophy of this church. It says the church of the Laodiceans, uh, not the church of Laodicea, although there is a city there. Uh, as it's used six times before, the church of or the church at. Uh, but this time, there is not that word in the Greek that uh, is translated uh, at or of. Uh, so that it's translated the church of the Laia, uh, uh, the uh, church of the Laodiceans, not the church of Laodicea. And uh, this was a church that had forgotten its divine ownership. Uh, it was more concerned about its own rights, and so it uses a play on the word of Laodicea, that is the city where they are founded, as a reminder. Uh, Laodicea is a as uh, means the people's rights. And uh, the, that they are uh, playing with danger here. They're focused on what they want rather than what God wants. They're forgetting that God, that, uh, God owns the church. Not the pastor, not the deacons, not the congregation. But God, it's God's church. Acts 20:28 20, reminds us, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. This is to the pastors. To feed the church of God. Whose church? 
God's, the church of God, which hath, he hath purchased, purchased with his own blood. It's God's church, not mine, not yours, not the board's. Uh, it's God's church, and we need to remember that. Amen? And the people's rights were preeminent at Laodicea. And this was a church that placed felt needs above the word of God. First, we want to look at, in verse 14, number, Roman number 1 there in your notes, the concern of our Lord. The concern of our Lord. Again, verse 14 says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Uh, if the Lord is concerned with a matter, we should be. Amen? And he's concerned about this. He is the Amen, he says here. Uh, the true, perfect, and final word. Uh, the word Amen means so be it. Sometimes it can be translated verily in the New Testament as well. And it means let it be so. Uh, and... Uh, the, the, he is the amen. He is the final word. Uh, he is the faithful and true witness, he says. His word, his verdict, should mean more than any church growth expert out there or any mega church pastor somewhere. Uh, he, but he says the church ought to be, we need to keep it that. Amen? And he knows our works, he says in verse 15. He says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would, uh, I would, uh, I would. Thou wert cold or hot. The church at Laodicea was neither uh, hot for the Lord or cold in the Lord. The church was spiritually sickening uh, because it was spiritually sick. And we have to remember that in that day and age, lukewarm water was a dangerous water. Uh, cold water suggests flowing spring. They didn't have refrigeration. Uh, they couldn't go up to the refrigerator and push the button on the refrigerator door and get cold water coming out because it was refrigerated. Uh, that's not how it worked. The only cold water there was was water flowing from a spring somewhere or a river or uh, something flowing from the mountaintops, melting snow caps. And uh, uh, that was the source, so it was clean, moving water. Hot water uh, had been cooked and cleansed by fire. And so it killed any bacteria or anything in it. Uh, anything in between brought sickness and disease. And this is the picture that he's talking about here. Uh, I would rather you be cold or hot. Either you're all in, uh, all in, or you're completely all out. <laughs> he said, but really, you're just lukewarm. I believe there are several symptoms of a, ch of a sick church that we see in our society today in this Laodicea time. First of all, letter A there, we see a loss of appetite for the word. A loss of appetite for the word. Many of our churches today care more about spiritual quips uh, that sound bites that will make them feel better than they are hungering for the word of God itself. But even a new Christian ought to seek the word of God itself. First Peter 2, 2 talks about the spiritual babe. He said, as newborn babes... Desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. <coughs> but people who have lost their appetite for hearing the word of God preached, which, by the way, that's God's design for our growth. Amen? Uh, he is to hear the word of God. That's one of the three areas that God says he will bless. Is blessed are he that readeth, and he that heareth, and uh, they that keep those things which are written. And, uh, but he, uh, the people have lost their appetite for hearing the word of God preached. 
you know, a, a loss of appetite brings a loss of growth. And Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, I think is a good pattern. I think it's a good to be in church as often as you can. Now, there are some that work on Sunday night or Wednesday night or other th- times, and I completely I understand that. Uh, I did my best to try whenever I applied for a, ch- a ch- uh, for a job uh, to let them know that I couldn't work on Sundays, um, and I had to stick to it at times in order to keep that because they would always press it and try to make me do it. But I'd have to put my foot down, and I'd have to say, I told you from the beginning I couldn't work on Sundays. I can't work on Sundays. And sometimes they would pressure me and say, well, you're going to have to work some Sundays. And i say, I'm sorry, but when you agreed to hire me, this was the agreement we had. And as long as you say it from the very beginning, they have to stick to it. Uh, and, you know, there were times that I applied for a job and told them that, and they said, we can't hire you unless you're willing to work on Sunday. And I walked away, and I said, okay, I understand. Uh, but that was my conviction. Uh, I believe I needed to be in church on Sunday. I think my family needed me to be in church on Sunday. But God always provided. Uh, He always provided. And I believe as often as we can, we need to be in church. Uh, Pastor, I grew up under, used to always say, three to thrive. And uh, if you want to really grow in the Christian life, uh, you need to be there as often as you can. And listen, I've seen the difference. Okay, I'm not a newbie. Okay, I'm not a novice. Uh, I've been in full-time ministry for 25 years. Okay? I've seen the difference of the lives of those who are faithful and open-heartedly attend as often as they can. And I've seen the difference between those who come as much as they have to, to look good or to feel better about themselves. And I've seen the difference of the lives that, uh, that it brings. And it is coming to church three times a week going to guarantee that your children turn out? Of course not. No. Uh, There's much more involved in that. Like, for instance, consistency at home. Uh, Consistency at home is a must for that to happen. But many other factors, too. Is going to church three times a week going to guarantee a growing Christian? No, absolutely not. It's going to have to depend upon an open and seeking heart when you're there. Uh, I've known people who were faithful Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, but they weren't coming to hear They weren't coming with an open heart. They had bitterness toward the pastor. And they were just there because they didn't have anywhere else to go. And you could see it in their lives. Their their, their Christian life was stagnant. Uh, You know, it's it's just not worth it. If you can't make it past the personality difference between you and your pastor, find some place you can, amen? Go faithfully and have an open heart before the Lord. Uh, You know, if, if something's bothering you, and if you're in, my, in our church here and something's bothering you, I've done something to offend you, come and talk to me. Amen? If I knew that I had done something to offend you, I would have already come to you and talked to you. Because the Bible commands me to. You know, isn't it interesting, the Bible? Who, let me ask you a question. Whose job is it? Whose responsibility is it to go to a person uh, and deal with a situation that's caused an offense? Whose responsibility? The offender or the offended? Whose job is it? Both. The Bible says it in two different places. If you know your brother has ought against you, go. In other places it says, if you have ought against another, go. God says it's both of your jobs to do it. So who's, who's going to do it? The one that's a better Christian. That's who's going to do it. Okay? It's not worth it. 
It's not worth it. We need to grow in this church, and this church needs you. And we need you to come with an open heart and ready to hear from God's word. And the truth is, churches as a whole are forsaking the assembling of themselves together. Churches as a whole, they're cutting, back, uh, cutting out services and cutting down the preaching time to smaller and smaller amounts and focusing on worship and other activities. And I love worship. I love singing. And I love special music. And I love all of those things. But there's nothing more important than the preaching of God's word. And we need to involve all of it. We need the hymns. We need the songs. The Bible commands that. But we also need the preaching of God's word. We need God's word. And so loss of appetite for the word, number two, or letter B, lessening of doctrine. Paul told Timothy to guard against this shift. In 2 Timothy 2, uh, 4, 2 through 5, he says, Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall not be turned into fables. And shall be turned into fables. Uh, but watch thou in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. Doctrine is important. Now, I know people who push that all of the Christians ought to come together and and forget about the differences of doctrine, and let's just get together and worship the Lord. You know, it's interesting, they're not willing usually to come to the Baptist church, though, and do that. Uh, they, wanna, they want that you to come to their church, uh, just, as, uh, just wants everyone to come together. A lot of times you find this in Catholic circles as well, because they're wrapped up into their own traditions, and they don't want to branch out to someone else. And as uh, the unbiblical, ecumenical spirit sweeps across this nation, doctrine is going out the window. And Sunday messages are being reduced to, to the milk, milk uh, to fluff. And doctrine is being lost. Number, or letter C, a lapse of, a lapse of convictions. Lapse of convictions. Especially in regard to worship. And there's an emphasis on entertainment over preaching today. 1 Corinthians one twenty one says, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save that believed. Somebody needs to stand up and preach the word of God. And many uh, churches out there kind of skew the word of God and entertain rather than uh, don't, not wanting to step on any toes, not wanting to ruffle anybody's feathers. And so they're very cautious about what they say so as not to cause any problems. Uh, some people just completely and 100% pervert the truth. Uh, main place Christian fellowship is a self-proclaimed country western church. I, I don't mind the country part, and I don't even mind the western part. And, uh, but uh, I don't like this quote. He said, we liken Jesus to Butch Cassidy and Isaiah to Louis L'Amour. I'm sorry, but Jesus is not Butch Cassidy, and Isaiah, the prophet of God, is not Louis L'Amour. Amen? Uh, the word of God is the word of God. And then you have other extremes. Andrew Stanley, this last October, hosted a two-day conference geared towards supporting LGBTQ plus parents and children in their church. In their church. And anybody's welcome to our church. Don't get me wrong. Anyone's welcome. But they're catering to it. He says, in a nutshell, those who struggle with same-sex addiction or attraction 
are convinced that traditional marriage is not an option for them. And if they can't live a chaste life, then they choose to marry for the same reasons we do, love and companionship. So he instructs that we ought to sit with them and accept them. Love them, yes. Accept their decision, no. We can love and we can rebuke in love. But we need to stand for the word of God. Other so-called churches like Bethel Church believes that God will always heal from diseases and they have healing services. And if they're not healed, it's not a deficiency from God. It must be the person's fault. They didn't have enough faith or they didn't have a, uh, something else didn't go right. His wife teaches a very false doctrine of angelology, claiming many angels have fallen asleep and need to be woken up. And so she takes their college students through the desert and stopping at different places in the desert and gets out of the car and cries out, yells out, wakey, wakey. And so the angels will wake up and get busy doing God's work. That's the kind of people we have in churches today, okay? Or the practice of grave soaking that she, that she pushes. Grave sucking or grave soaking, they call it. Where they'll lie on the graves of great Christians and historical Christians trying to soak up the anointing from the deceased body. This is craziness that's going on in our, in our Christian churches, so-called. These may be extremes, but there are many levels in between. And many pastors today are more interested in programming than preaching or posturing than praying. And worship services become places of confusion and focused only on feelings, leaving behind the doctrine and truth. Are feelings bad in a worship service? Absolutely not. I believe we ought to have emotion in our worship. Uh, God created our emotions. They're not bad. They ought to be involved. Our worship, ought to be, uh, our worship service ought not be dry and dusty. Amen? But if we're solely focused on the emotion, we're going to be led astray. And the doctrine is going to suffer. Number, letter D. Uh, the lowering of standards we see in these churches. And personal and ecclesiastical standards. Uh, the modern day church, like Laodicea, is emphasizing the rights and the freedom over responsibility. And for example, I'll do what I want. Or in the church setting, I'll preach what I want. Or what they want. A lot of times is the case. I just read an article called 18 Misunderstood Acts the Bible Says Aren't Actually Sin." Their claim was the Bible says they aren't actually sin. Okay? Never mind. I'll be honest with you. I have to agree with some of the things on the list that those things aren't sin. Uh, but they could have at least, if they're going to say what the Bible says that's not sin, they ought to at least maybe quote the Bible. Amen? You would have expected that, but there was not one Bible verse in the whole thing. The entire thing was about you can wear what you want, you can do what you want with your body, you can drink what you want, you can buy what you want, ignoring biblical principles on going into debt. You can play golf instead of going to church. Of course, the Bible doesn't say you can't play golf on Sunday anywhere, uh, you know, but it, it has much to say about our priorities. You heard about the preacher who got tired of... of, uh, of People missing church on nice weather days, and all the men in the church were out playing golf on Sunday. And, uh, and he got tired of it. And he said he woke up one Sunday and he told his wife, "I'm, I'm tired of it. I'm going to go play golf today." She said, "Honey, somebody's got to preach." He said, "They'll have to figure it out. I'm going golfing." 
And I'm not going to tell him that I'm going golfing. I'm just going to call in sick. And so he went golfing on a Sunday morning, and he went out there, and he got stepped up to the first tee, and he hit the ball, and boy, it just went perfect, went over, and hole in one. And he's like, wow, I can't believe it, amazing. Went to the next hole, and he hit the ball, and hole in one. Uh, hole three, hole in one. Hole four, hole in one. Hole five, hole in one. Up in heaven, the angel's looking over at Jesus saying, what are you doing? Why are you making them hole, you do, uh, make a hole in one every time? He said, who's he going to tell? <laughs> worst thing in the world is to make a hold of one and not be able to tell anybody. That's the worst punishment you can possibly get. Anyways, uh, you know, it's, you know uh, they, they, in this article, though, they condone swearing. It's not a sin to swear. It's not a, uh, this one got me. It's not a sin to consult psychics. A cult. It's not sin, divorce, sin, divorce isn't sin. Gambling isn't sin, they said. You know, this is, this is wrong. This is the world today, even in religious circles. How can something that feels this good be wrong? The old song says, right? I think, I never heard it. But, uh, you know, I, 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 what is wrong with the religious crowd today that they would excuse those kind of behaviors. Don't get me wrong. Outward standards do not equal spirituality. Okay, let me say that again. Outward standards does not equal spirituality. But if you, uh, if you understand and appropriate grace, your life will change. Amen? You say, do I have to quit doing blankety-blank? What? Well, that sounded bad. Uh, do I have to do, stop doing? You have to stop blankety-blanking. But uh, do I have to stop blank in order to become a Christian? No, you don't. I've been asked many times, do I have to stop drinking? Do I have to quit smoking? Do I have to do whatever in order to become a Christian? No, the Bible never says you have to stop doing something. You have to repent. Now, that's a change of mind. You have to realize, this is wrong. This is sin. I'm going to change my mind about this. It is sin, and I'm going to agree with God, confess that, and I'm going to repent and change my mind about it. Sanctification is the process where the Holy Spirit, little by little, changes us to be more like His image. That doesn't happen overnight. No, there are people that get saved and quit cold turkey. Never drink a, another drink. My best friend in high school was like that. He was, he was a drunk before I knew him. But he, he was, I mean, he was bad alcoholic. And uh, he got saved in his senior year of high school. And he went and cleaned out all of his liquor and never touched another drop again. And, uh, you know, I, how he can do that, but others can't, I don't know. The power of God, sure, but why doesn't God do it for someone else? Why do they make him struggle? I don't know. Apparently they have something to learn that he, they need that God didn't think he needed. Just wanted it to be done with it. I don't know. But uh, we appropriate grace in our lives through the means of grace. And by that, we change. And we will change. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us. What is it that teaches us? Grace teaches us. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The grace of God teaches us that. And it helps us to grow in Christ. An inward change will always result in an outward change. Always. Unfortunately, what happens too often are two extremes. Either there's no change at all, they just go through the motions, or 
there's only an outward change. And the inside is just as filthy as the Pharisees that Jesus called whitewashed sepulchers. We need to be careful. We look at the church of our Lord. Number two, the conditions of our church. I got on a soapbox a little bit there, but you'll, I hope you'll forgive me. But that's needed to be said. The conditions of the church. The lukewarmness was manifested, manifested itself in two distinct ways. Verse 17, it says, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. First thing that it, uh, it, it manifested itself was in materialism. There's nothing wrong with God blessing an individual. There's nothing wrong with God blessing a church with resources and goods, with buildings as far as the eye can see. There's nothing wrong with that. But we must not allow our buildings and our people and our resources to replace God. What happens, sometimes a church will grow so big and, uh, and their focus becomes on, I have to keep this. And they end up... Uh, condoning things they shouldn't condone and doing things they shouldn't do just to be able to keep the people. How many, church, how many pastors uh, compromise because somebody in the church is a big donate, donator and they, they don't like him preaching on such, such and such? You know, hey, I got news for you. I have no clue who gives what. That's by design by this church, amen? I have no idea what you give or if you do give. I don't know and I don't want to know. Because I'm going to preach the word of God no matter what. Amen? And we're going to preach the truth. And he says, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased in goods, I have need of nothing. Today we see churches hiring style experts for, to dress the pastor. I, I, you may not believe this, but I haven't, I haven't hired a, a style expert. Okay? I, it's all natural. I just do it naturally. But... Uh, I, I, they hire image consultants to approve the messages. Uh, you know, I, I don't turn my messages into anyone. I pray before God. Amen? Now, if somebody wants to do it, I, I don't fault them. Okay? But I believe I shouldn't answer to God. I'm, I, that's not what I meant. <laughs> I don't believe I should answer to any man about what I preach in this, in this pulpit. Now, if I go astray and the church votes me out tomorrow, then I have to live with what I believed God wanted me to say. Okay? But I believe I stand before God alone, what I say from this pulpit. Uh, they want to image consultants to approve the message, to make sure they're not going to offend anyone. They hire publicists to handle the advertisements, to make sure it puts the face, uh, best face. All focused on making sure the image looks wealthy and successful and nothing will offend anyone. We need to focus on honoring God and His image, not focused on ourselves or anyone else. John the Baptist said it best. In John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. He needs to become the most important thing in our lives. I believe we ought to put the best foot forward. I do. But if our focus is on our image rather than the testimony of Christ, we may have a problem. We need to focus on Christ. If we look around us and say, we have enough. We don't need God. That's what Laodicea Church was doing here. They were materialistic, but they also had, uh, uh, secondly, letter B, ignorance. They had an ignorance. The second part of that verse says, And knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. And I, that's, almost, that's the cold part of it. If they had a known, that would have, they would have been cold. 
but they weren't close enough to God to even realize they were in trouble. You know, they had been slowly changing through the years that they didn't even realize. It's kind of like a, a frog in a pot. You know how they say uh, you can't drop a live frog into a pot of boiling water. He'll just jump right out. But you put it in a, a lukewarm or a cold pot of water and turn on the fire, and it slowly gets hotter and hotter and hotter, and the frog will stay there until he dies. And that's how you cook a frog, a live frog, a fresh frog. And, you know, that's what's happening in a lot of our churches. It slowly changes. They don't notice the changes as much until it's too late. And it's true of many churches today. Things have changed so drastically in the last 10 or 20 years, they don't really even see it. A good crowd does not necessarily mean spirituality. And God is more interested in the health of a church than the size of our church. God looks past our buildings, our brochures, and even our carpet and paint, as much as I think it's important. God looks beyond that. Man looks on the outward, but God sees the heart. We need to make sure our heart is right. Don't be ignorant of the things that the church is doing wrong. Pray with me that God will convict us if there's anything that we're doing that was not right. The Holy Spirit will lead us. Number three, the counsel of the Lord to the church. The counsel of the Lord to the church. He says, I counsel thee to buy, me, uh, buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that, thou, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chase and be zealous therefore and repent. Seems kind of odd, uh, the wording that, God, that he talks about here. It's a church known for their wealth. It's a church known for their raiment that they make and, and send out. It's a, no, a church known for their medical training and the eye salve that they produce. And these are the three things that he says. He says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried by the fire, that you may, mayest be rich. That seems odd, doesn't it, that God is telling them that they should do this? And this reflects back to other verses, though, that speak of our works going through the fire and coming out gold, silver, and precious stones. Also, it talks about in 1 Peter 1, 7, it says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor of the glory of the appearing of Jesus Christ. He says, get my kind of gold. You want real riches? It's not the gold found in this world. It's the gold that I'm going to send you, much more precious than this world's gold. The righteousness and the, uh, the, uh, the, the wealth that God can offer he says that thou mayest be clothed, a white raiment given to the righteousness, righteous he's talking about here. He says, I salve to heal their sight that they would see. Earlier they could not see where they went wrong. They were blind, he said. But he, he needs to, them to put on the eye salve to be able to see the spiritual truth. And gold garments and eye salve are the, all the Laodicea's chief exports. But God wanted them to receive the gold of faith unfeigned and works from a pure heart. He wanted them to be clothed in righteousness, not blind to their current works, but the righteousness of Christ. He wanted them to receive their spiritual eye salve, to heal their spiritual blindness and see their lukewarm condition and change. And so he calls them, first of all, letter A, to repent. And this is the call of a loving Savior. Verse 19, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. We need to change our minds about ourselves. 
As preachers, we need to humble ourselves and go to the Lord and seek His truth. Go back to what God wants His church to be, not what we want or not what the people want. I know of churches who have started who sent out a flyer and a questionnaire to the whole neighborhood and said, if you could have your church, what would you want it to be? What would it look like? What would it be? What would you want me to preach on? What would you want me to do? And they got all those results and they created a church, how the people in that area wanted the church to look like and be like. That's not God's plan. Amen? God gave us a blueprint for his church. And we need to follow that. They ought to see a well, uh, the churches was the church of the people's rights, but we we want what is right, amen. The righteousness of God. Then he says, "Let her be return, return to God's spiritual values." Verse eighteen, he says, "I counsel thee to buy me of gold tried by fire, and thou mayest be rich. White raiment that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eyesalve that thou mayest not see." And he wants them to have this righteousness, return to what's true. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. He says, be zealous, therefore, and return. He stands in love and he rebukes and chastens this church. He calls them to return to him. Be zealous for him, he says. Webster's defines zealous as showing great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. He says, I want you to be, I want you to show great energy and enthusiasm to return to me. Repent. I wonder, does that describe our pursuit of God? And will his will pursuit for his will for our church and our Christian life? God is calling these churches and all of us to repent. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent, he says. Someone may say all this talk about the Laodiceans and uh, re- repenting and, and uh, all of this and rebuking. Where's grace? Well, verse 20 comes along, and it's a great verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Boy, that's grace. Amen. This is one of the most humbling verses in the Bible. His grace and mercy... With his grace and mercy, Jesus standing outside the door, knocking on the door of the church. He would like to fellowship with the church. Boy, can you imagine having a church that wasn't in fellowship with Christ? Boy, what a dangerous place that could be for our church. He's not trying to burst in to interrupt the rock concert. He's a gentleman, amen? (laughs) He waits for us to respond. He's not trying to burst in to upset the safe space corner of the church where people can go if they get their feelings hurt. A real thing in some churches, by the way. They get convicted and they get their feelings hurt, so they have to go, they can go to the safe space. No doubt he wants to burst in and turn some tables, probably, in some churches. I know I do. I'm not even talking about uh, the churches so called that have gone so extreme as to put rainbow flags up on the altar. Or have gone completely apostate in many other ways. I'm not even talking about those. I'm talking about those churches who still claim to preach the gospel. But are trying to look like the world in order to reach the world. He's knocking on the door. It's up to us to go and let him in. To obey him. Listen to his voice. 
Not only is he showing grace by knocking on the church doors, but he's still knocking on individual church hearts today. On the individual hearts of the people. And he's still inviting them to come and worship and fellowship with him. It's interesting to note that the historical Laodicean church, their lukewarm legacy did not become its final legacy. The church of Laodicea, according to history, not according to the Bible, but according to history, survived Domitian's reign as Caesar. The city became a seat of Christian leadership in the church. A Christian council was even held there in the 4th century A.D. Archaeologists have discovered almost 20 ancient Christian chapels and churches on the site of the former city. The largest of the churches at Laodicea, uh, called the Church of Laodicea, took up the entire, an entire city block and dates to the beginning of the 4th century. They grew. Laodicea remained an important city until the 7th century when it was struck by a devastating earthquake and subsequently abandoned. Completely the city was abandoned. My point is that perhaps this lukewarm church heard the rebuke and they repented. I hope that others will may, uh, maybe around today will hear the, the rebuke as well. Including us, amen. Have an open heart when we come to church. Say, if there be any wicked way in me, please tell me, convict me, show me that I can repent. Hope that'll be our heart today, amen. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer tonight. We'll take some prayer requests. I didn't make a new prayer sheet, I apologize.